Hey everybody, I'm Amna Navaz. This is Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest and in-depth conversations about some of the issues that we think may divide us as Americans. Um, and also not just to talk about what we believe, but why we believe what we do. So each week we have a special guest for a one-on-one -on -one interview. This week, I'm really pleased to say we're joined by Jihad Turk. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. And, you know, I can't think of a better person to invite to make people feel uncomfortable than someone named Jihad. So... <laughs> We are going to get into that. It's you are the you're the president of uh, Bayonne Claremont uh, Graduate College, uh, a study a place to for Islamic graduate studies. That's a fair way to describe it, yeah, right? Yeah. We're going to get into why the school was started and um, what it is you teach there. Um, but we're going to have a really good conversation, I think, about Islam in America today and how it's practiced and. Um, how you came to the position that you came to at Bayan. So first, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, where you grew up? Sure. Um, well, I'm I'm an American kid from Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom's from the Midwest. She's from Oklahoma, Christian-American, Methodist. Uh, my father immigrated to the U.S. in 1956 from a small town called Jerusalem. Uh, he's Heard of Palestinian, it. born mm -hmm. in Palestine in 1938. So he was a 17-year-old in 56 when he moved here and okay. uh, finished high school in Merced, California. Uh, eventually met my mom. They got <laughs> married, moved to Arizona where, where I was born and raised. I have four siblings. And uh, we, uh, yeah, we grew up in a really small Muslim community. It was really, um, you know, there, was, there wasn't really a mosque. We, we, my dad kind of formed one. Uh, at a house uh, and told us we were Muslims but he you know he didn't really have a lot to offer us growing up religiously because he was so young when he came and he you know he didn't read books about Islam he was just kind of through osmosis kind of picked it up as a kid in Jerusalem uh, and so you know having a mom who's of a Christian background and a dad who's Muslim we were told we were Muslim growing up but there wasn't a lot of substance there so so what did it mean to be Muslim like in tradition or practice? Well, I was told more I was Palestinian-American than Muslim-American. Okay. So we would go to, like, rallies, and, you know, it was more politically active. Uh, my dad prayed, but, you know, prayer was in Arabic. I didn't grow up speaking in Arabic. Um, there wasn't a lot of, I guess, meaning behind the rituals that we did. We fasted in the mm -hmm. month of Ramadan. Um, we, he tried to drag us to the Sunday school at the local house mosque, um, and we would always try and negotiate out of that. Uh, but, yeah, I didn't really have a strong Muslim identity. Uh, you know, I knew I was Muslim and Palestinian and American, but, you know, I was a typical American kid. I mean, just there wasn't really much to my culture, Palestinian or Muslim culture growing up, other than, you know, some of the basics. And uh, it really wasn't until I was in high school when my parents were divorcing when I was 17, I started asking the big questions in life, like why, you know, what what is, if marriage isn't forever, like what is the source of peace and tranquility and happiness? And so I, I guess I began my spiritual journey at that point earlier than maybe some people would. On the one hand, I was really well-adjusted. I was doing really well in school. I was, you know, in the, in the taking a lot of honors classes. I was uh, I, you know, I played varsity sports since my sophomore year. I was lettered and all of that. And then, you know, I was also popular. I was homecoming king of my uh, senior year. But, you know, the divorce kind of left me a little bit, um, you know, in, in search of something greater. Uh, instead of turning to drugs, alcohol, other things, I, I figured I'll just, uh, you know, because uh, I saw what that did to some of my friends. Yeah. Um, I started asking the bigger questions and began looking at both, you know, both traditions, Christianity and Islam, and to see if there was something there. My, my, my father took me to a youth group, a youth camp called MINA, Muslim Youth of North America. Uh -huh. He sent me, rather, me and my sisters out there when I was a, a, a junior and, and senior in high school. And, yeah, I met some people there who were religious and who I guess were good role models and who seemed to have, be caring and and, and, you know, a good influence, I would say. And so that kind of at least planted the seed that religion might be, there might be something there. Before um, you went on sort of a spiritual journey, 
or in search of, of what spirituality meant for you. You said something in, a, in an interview that caught my eye, which is that most people when you were growing up didn't call you jihad. They called you Jay. <laughs> Why was that? Well, I mean, in Arizona growing up in the 70s, I was born in 1971. Yeah. So in the 70s, this is way before 9-11, way before the Gulf, first Gulf War. Uh, there wasn't a lot of diversity. You were either black, white, or Mexican. And so I was always out in the sun playing sports and whatnot. So I was, I was darker than I am now. I'm kind of olive now, but I was pretty dark uh, growing up. And so people just assumed I was Mexican, and Jihad must have been an exotic Mexican name, <laughs> Jihad or something. But it was still kind of uh, unusual. And so my classmates, my teammates called me Jay. Uh, and I remember I was, I must have been eight, seven, eight, nine, something like that. And I was playing soccer, and the roster came out, and it said J-A-Y, Turk. And my father, who didn't always go to my games, but he went to one, he got the roster, and he, you know, he looked disappointed, like, Really? And and he like he went home, he crossed it out, he made dittos, which are like photocopies. Mm -hmm. And he went back and he passed it out to all the parents at the next game. I was with like, your I was mortified name. with the correct enough. Like he like crossed it out and wrote J I H A D. And I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? You're embarrassing me. He goes, No. Your name has a great meaning and I chose it for a good reason. It means the struggle to do the right thing. And it might be unusual or unfamiliar for people, but it's worth that extra effort. So I've always been kind of proud of my name ever since then. And so even though he embarrassed me in that one moment, you know, I've always gone by jihad ever since then. Although at that age, it's really easy for parents to embarrass their kids. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Just giving them a hug in public was embarrassing right? enough. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned this spiritual quest that you then go on as a teenager. Where does that take you? How do you do this? So I, you know, I did my freshman year at Arizona State University, and I asked my dad what I should study going to college. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter what you study in college, you're Palestinian, you're going to go to business. So, you know, he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't, you know, very helpful, but I was really good in science and math. And that's kind of the way my brain works. And so I started out engineering, and I was doing quite well, but I was in addition to the engineering track courses, you take electives, general ed courses, and I, I was in the spiritual journey, right? So I was trying to take courses on philosophy and religion and this and that. And Arizona State now has a great program, but at that time it didn't really. It was ranked number one uh, by Playboy magazine as a party school, but it was not like a great academic institution back in 1889 when I started. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, I, I just was not, I mean, they had some courses on philosophy, but they didn't have anything on Islamic philosophy. They had one course on Islam that was taught by someone who hated Islam. So it was very uncomfortable being in that class. I tried taking Islamic, you know, history of Islam in Spain or Islamic history. They didn't offer anything, even Spanish history, because Spain was ruled by Muslims for about 800 years. Mm -hmm. I go to take the course and it says Spain starting in the year 1492, the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but also the year that the Muslims and Jews are kicked out of Spain. So... It was a little bit, I, I felt unfulfilled in my quest there. And so I had met somebody from South America who had just come to serve as the local imam in Tempe mm -hmm. near, the, near the university. Uh, and uh, he, he had just come back from studying Arabic and doing Islamic studies at the Islamic University of Medina. So he had given me the full sc scoop about what the program is like at this and that. That combined with um, the, my, a, a good friend of mine, she had just married... Uh, uh, an up-and-coming scholar who uh, had moved to Arizona for the year to clerk for the Supreme Court of Arizona mm -hmm. for a justice there. And he was an Islamic legal scholar uh, named Khaled Abu Fadl. And uh, he's now at UCLA Law School. But at that time, he was just kind of up-and-coming and was uh, on his way next year to the, the following year to do his PhD at Princeton. So I kind of asked him to give me a reading list and to, you know, to sort of give me a grounding in Islam because I was adrift. Yeah. And uh, after some sort of persistence, he finally agreed and gave me a, a reading list. And then he started holding a, a weekly class, just kind of give me the basics, me and some of my friends. So I was doing that on the side and then looking for academic courses to augment but I didn't have the Arabic language. I didn't have, there wasn't much there at the university. So after meeting this guy who came back from Medina and was telling me, oh, yeah, you get a full ride scholarship and you learn Arabic and it's Quranic Arabic and you'll have access to all the sources. I thought, wow, that's great. And so being inspired by that class taught by Abu Fadl mm -hmm. to say, wow, there's something sort of tangible, meaningful here. There's some substance. And, you know, still kind of exploring my roots of both Islam and Christianity, but not finding a lot about Islam. Finally, I was getting the, the window was, was, was being open for me. The door was kind of ajar a little bit. So I said, all right, I'm going to apply on a whim yeah. 
to get a to, to study at the Islamic University in Medina, Saudi Arabia, which you know it, it comes with a full ride scholarship. And it was great, and I received the acceptance letter two weeks after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in the run up to the first Gulf War. So I you know I was like, yeah, I got this. Wait a second, I'm going into a war zone, uh, and everyone said, don't go, don't go. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to a war zone, but no one's going to attack Medina. Medina is kind of a safe place. Right. No one, not Iraq, not the Americans. No one's going to attack Medina. So I said, I'm going anyway. And so I went and, you know, the first semester was fine. That's when they built up all the troops. Yeah. And then during the winter break, January 15th, I think they started dropping all the bombs and, you know, the shock and awe, if you remember back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then so they closed down the university for a little while. I mean, I, I stayed with a friend in, who was a professor in, in Jeddah, and we, he had a room, room sealed because there was Scud missile threat. It was also right. there was concern that there were gas. Yeah. So we had a gas-sealed room and all of that, and every once in a while we'd have to go into that room when the air sirens went off and oh, all of man. that. So, but anyway, that passed, and then uh, we went back and finished up, and I came back for a second year. And Well, when you were there in – previously talking about it, you you said that it was like culture shock compared to the way that you were raised and Islam as you knew it and the way that you were studying Islam there. uh, What was that like? What was the shock? So I, you know, I was a little bit prepared because I had interviewed this graduate of the program. And, you know, I understood sort of his narrow way of looking at Islam versus the kind of broader, more nuanced, sophisticated way that I was learning from a doctor, Khaled Bufadl, Mm -hmm. wasn't a doctor at the time, but and and so you know I kind of was prepared to to be focused on learning the Arabic but not the Islam hmm. but you go there and you know what was striking or shocking to me was here we are studying at an Islamic University the entire focus was on memorizing things not understanding not developing critical thinking and it wasn't even on character I mean that they would have 4,000 students. They would take a, a, a midday, mid-morning break, and everyone would go rush to the cafeteria and, like, push and shove and elbow, kind of like you're at the Kaaba, right? <laughs> and everyone's, you know, pushing and shoving and shouting over each other to try and get the two poor immigrant laborers who are serving in the cafe to, to give them the cup of tea or the biscuits or whatever first. And I was just like, this is – there's kind of a – you know, there's it's a, it's a it's a surreal environment to be studying Islam and something so reverent and all of that. Yeah. But there's no corresponding spiritual development. It's all about the superficial and the and the letter of the law, et cetera. So I was I was just kind of there, focused on the language, and I brought a stack of books in English because I you know my Arabic wasn't that good yet. Uh, but I would study people like Al Ghazali and other texts that were banned from Saudi Arabia. Uh, so you so literally had to import. I had to import <laughs> other scholarship. texts yeah. to supplement your education there, because otherwise it was just rote memorization. Yes, and I mean I memorized literal I memorized Quran when I was there. Not all of it, but yeah. a, a tenth of it. Yeah, I memorized uh, you know other hadith teachings of the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah, I learned you know law, so, you know ask you know rulings and and their evidence and all of that. So yeah. I, le- I learned and memorized things. But I did not learn any critical thinking skills. I did not really have an in-depth connection to the to the tradition, and so. But I knew that going in there, so I was focused more than most students on getting as much as I could. Yeah. Knowing that, well, I guess it was in my first year that I kind of had my my walkabout, my spiritual walkabout, where I said, okay, this is I found something beautiful in this religion. I'm able to now access the Quran, and I was getting more and more in depth in my ability to to understand the tradition in the original language. I said, well, now what do I want to do with my life? War yeah. is happening around me between East and West, between you know America and the Muslim world. Um, but this religion is something that's beautiful and meaningful. So I, my journey began way before the conflict, mm-hmm. but it was in the context of conflict. So I said, well, you know, I, I think I know what I want to do with my life. I want to go back, go into academia, provide an opportunity for Muslim students on U.S. campuses, college campuses, to learn about Islam in a way that's not hostile, like what I experienced, but also to be a bridge between the Muslim world and the, the mainstream of American society so that there could you know, be gr- greater understanding, which hopefully would, uh, would preempt another conflict. But of course, Gulf War II happened already. But, but so you, you know. saw, in the midst of all that conflict, you saw your potential academic contributions and religious study as a way to sort of bridge divides, right? Yeah, as a way to provide understanding, educate people. 
because like, as a mission yeah, or something. Yes, because when I was there, you know, not that I appreciated the way that they practiced Islam. I mean, it, I did definitely miss so much about America. Yeah. But you know, I also got to know uh, and love the people that were there, and and I disagree with the approach at the university, but. You know, the people are human beings, and, you know, you, I, I got to know and, and travel and live in the area. And so I, I eventually said, well, you know, I here I have a foot in each tradition. I'm kind of uniquely positioned, yeah. being both American and Muslim, mm-hmm. and now having lived and, and, and learned the language of the region, you know, to come back and try and serve as that bridge and, and, and hopefully uh, create a context that doesn't drive itself towards a, a clash of civilizations or but warfare or conflict. Back it up for a second. When you when you're you know raised you're American and you're Muslim and you wanted to learn more about your faith, was there any opportunity in America for you to do that? Did no. you have to go somewhere else? I had to go somewhere else. I mean I not only did I not know Arabic, so that was a big barrier to being able to access the sources. Yeah. But in nineteen eighty nine there weren't very many books in English. Now there are a ton, but back in the day there wasn't uh, the resource there weren't the resources. And then you know, not only that, there wasn't really any institution. There wasn't really yeah. any pathway to really growing in my faith. And so, um, people who wanted to do that had to go to Syria, had to go to Egypt, had to go to Islamic University of Medina or Malaysia or Pakistan or somewhere else. Did you see in your time in Saudi Arabia? Did you see any conflict between the Islam that you had been raised in and the way that you understood it and the things that you found your faith grounded in and the way that it was practiced there? Yeah. Um, so Medina was a foreign students university, and yeah. there were foreign students from other Arab countries and Muslim countries, and then there were some from the West. One of the one of the the most um, uh, black and white differences that I saw was, to some extent, the way that the the ideology wanted to practice focusing on some of the superficial. Um, uh, you know the long beard and the you know the, the superficial physical manifestations, physical manifestations yeah. of the faith as opposed to the core the inner <clears throat> the spiritual you know aside from that there was a there was a stark difference in attitude amongst the students who were attracted to studying medina from places like england and europe where there was this wahhabi salafi ideology and mentality that was more I would say rooted in an oppositional posture to their circumstances. So I met with some of the these circumstances, meaning the Western culture that they were yes. raised in. So yeah. they, so their attitude from England, by the most part, Indo-Pakistani yeah. um, culture, they, um, there's a, you know, there's there's a large percentage of Indo-Pakistani Muslims in in England, mm-hmm. and so when when we were when we were there, uh, when they, when I'm sorry, when they came to Medina. They had this kind of animosity, hostility, even towards their their homeland from the, you know England. Hmm. Uh, they said that they uh, are racist against us. They consider us, you know, they use the N word. They, um, you know, they they used to most of those the 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 men that were there, the the students, male students. I'm assuming they were all men. They were right? all men. It's yeah. a male students university. Let's put that out there too. Let's oh, just put that. Yeah. They had a female university, but you had to already know Arabic, and then the male instructors came through closed circuit television. So it was like a one way mirror okay. kind of thing. That's so a whole. That's a whole nother. That's a, that's a whole separate thing. Okay. But <laughs> but you know they had this kind of like animosity or hostility, and most of them had come through this. I would say this attempt to try and fit in to where they came came from, mm-hmm. uh, culturally going to clubs, maybe drinking, dating, all of the things that you know are the hallmark of growing up in the West. But they they still felt like they weren't breaking through, or they weren't they were still discriminated or marginalized, yeah, and maybe despised. And so the the attitude that came through, quite frankly, was that they harbored a hostility or animosity back at their home country. Whereas you know I was well-adjusted in my American identity, and I was looking forward to coming back and contributing. You know, they just wanted to go back and stand at a nightclub and shame other Muslims that were going into nightclubs or, you know, kind of create a a separate or a separatist kind of culture identity back home in in England. Yeah. So that was one thing that stood out. Um, The other thing was just generally the treatment of women or the non-inclusion of women, this kind of being so discomfortable. Uncomfortable, rather. What's yeah. the name of it? Yeah, okay, I, yeah. Can, I can give you that Uncomfortable. word. Uncomfortable. That's the it's word. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, so having extreme discomfort with uh, with interacting with women. Yeah, I mean, there's just this 
very palpable. And what was striking is after the two years in Medina, I came back and decided to come and study at Berkeley, as you know, which is mm-hmm. you know, a better institution than ASU. No offense, Sun Devils, but. Um, but uh, I said, well, let me, let me since I'm going to go on to graduate school, let me uh, travel to Iran and learn Farsi yeah. and uh, learn more about the culture than just studying Farsi in a classroom. Let me go and, and do an academic year there. So I withdrew from college and did another academic year. It took me seven years to do my undergraduate degree. So uh, Iran is, you would imagine that it's you know harsh in the treatment of women. Women are large and in charge in that country. I mean, I lived in a Persian, you know, Persian family home. The woman ran the home. Women are in parliament. Women are in the workforce. Women are in public transportation. And there just wasn't that kind of uptight discomfort in the role that women played in Iran. That you, even though that there's kind of this imposition you had to cover, blah 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 blah. But societally speaking, I mean, in terms of the social dynamic, women are much more integrated in a place like Iran than they are in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is. It's just so total division. Total, total division. Like women yeah. are invisible. Yeah. No, I've spent I've spent time there. It's yeah. um, it's challenging. It's a challenging place to be a woman. When you came back to the states, though, a completely different social context. Yeah. And you kind of set out uh, furthering your Islamic study here, right? Um, and you you were sort of an ambassador of kinds, like speaking to communities outside of the Muslim faith about Islam, like answering questions. Well, at, and, at first, what I did was I pursued my degree. So yeah. I, I did, and I also got married. Uh, I got married my senior year at Berkeley. And uh, so, but I, I, I pursued my, my bachelor's degree, and then I went on to Texas, UT Austin for my master's degree mm-hmm. and did Islamic law, uh, and then came out to UCLA in 1999 to do my PhD. And I was still just focused on my own studies for a number of years. And it wasn't until 2005, yeah. some six years into my PhD, which is still not finished. Um, they, is it uh, really not? It's still not finished. Yeah, my wife is very patient. It's been 22 <laughs> years now. Um, so uh, in any case, uh, I was six years into the PhD. I was approached by the largest and oldest mosque in Los Angeles, the Islamic Center of Southern California, mm-hmm. which is more forward-looking, I would say, than most mosques. They, they came to me. They said, we want you to serve as our religious director. And I said, well, you know, I... Uh, I'm an academic, I have this other track, and the vision, the walkabout, Medina, all of that. Right, right. And they said, yeah, that's great and all, but, you know, give it a try. When you say it's more forward-looking, what do you mean? Well, I mean, they've had women on their board since 1952. Yeah. Consistently. Uh, they have the chairwoman of the board now. Mm-hmm. Um, they've, they've never required women wear the hijab to come inside the building, like most mosques have done historically, and mm-hmm. only in recent years is that uh, opening up. Um, they've always been involved in interfaith relations and civically engaged. I remember growing up in the mosque, I was told it was haram or, you know, un-Islamic to vote, right? It's like, oh, really? oh yeah. It's like, well, voting, to if vote you vote. in like an American, like an yeah, election. Yeah, it's like any- if you vote, because, you know, there are a lot of Palestinians in the community, they're like, oh, voting is like endorsing the politician who's going to support the mistreatment of Palestinians. Wow. So... So, yeah, so voting was, like, eschewed and being civically engaged is like, oh, that's an endorsement of this corrupt system and blah, yeah. blah, blah. So that was, that was actually quite normative back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and the Islamic Center has always been, let's vote and let's civically be civically engaged and invite the mayor to come and speak at the mosque and yeah. work with the chief of police and this and that and but the it's other thing. But that, that was not the norm. That was not the norm. And it's still not the norm, really. It's, it's, it's becoming changing. more normal. But yeah, yeah the Islamic Center was way ahead of its time. They used calculation to determine when Ramadan is, the month of fasting, because... Instead of just Instead of just sighting. like waiting it until the night, the <laughs> night before and say, did I see the moon? He's right. like, well... Khawarizmi, you know, calculated all of this uh, a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's just use calculation. Yeah. So, so, so you know, in, they were ahead were, of their time in a number of a number a number of ways. In but, your role there, you yeah. did a lot of sort of community work. Right? Yeah. So you I were, I you were actually out about answering questions and talking to people outside of the faith. Yeah. So in that role, because they already had kind of the relationships built with the interfaith community, yeah. civic society. So I came on. I worked with the youth. I, you know, was uh, giving the sermons and dealing with the community education and and broadly speaking. Yeah. But also was highly involved in interfaith relations. And so I was in many ways like a spokesperson for Islam, not just to the interfaith community, but oftentimes in media because L.A., you know, we have this little town here called Hollywood. You might have heard about it. it. So, you know, there's a lot of engagement with media and media production and and whatnot. So so I would be uh, doing interviews and just generally... Uh, sometimes working with Hollywood and just doing other things where I'm 
outward outward facing and most mosques are just kind of insular yeah they're kind they're of just like they're just a yeah. community serving the basic needs and they can't even do that let alone go think about going beyond that where the islamic center has always been let's do this but it's important that we also do that i'm curious how you would answer some of the questions that you got because mm-hmm. i'm i'm willing to bet that some of the questions you got then are questions that a lot of people have today yeah about basic tenets of islam and how you explain things like to when people would ask you about like Islamic law or Sharia law, what, yeah. what would you tell them? Well, it depends on the context, but generally speaking, I mean, people don't know what they when, when they think of Islamic law, they think of cutting of hands and stoning of women, and you know what they see on the news, right? Yeah, like, Islamic law is coming to impose, you know, belief, and if you don't believe it, then they're going to cut your head off or something. So that's not Islamic law. So really, I asked the people asking the question, like, what do you mean by Islamic law? And yeah. usually, it's just those talking points. And I said, well, first of all. You know the verse about stoning in the Quran? They go, yeah. I say, well, there's no verse about stoning in the Quran. It's in the Bible. You know, and people are like, whoa, wait, what? You know, and so, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's yeah. there's, there's, no verse. Yeah, I said, you know the verse about killing Christians and Jews? And they said, of course we do. I said, there's no verse about killing Christians and Jews. They said, but I heard, you know, I heard about it a lot. It must be there. And I said, well, where is it? There is no verse. And then they would, you know, they would look and look and they wouldn't find it. And then, you know, I'd say, you know that verse that says, kill them where you find them? And they'd say, yeah, I know that one. I said, that, that one is, it does exist, but that's just only part of the verse. The rest of the verse says, you know, the them, by the way, is not Christians and Jews. It was the people who were fighting against Muhammad and his companions at the time in Medina. Uh, he said, and the verse says, when, you, you, when your enemy comes and, 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 and attacks, you know, fight them you fight where them you where encounter you, them. Yeah. Don't turn and run. But if your enemy is inclined towards peace, you have to make peace. So that's the verse. I mean, so people take things out of context to scare Muslims, but also some Muslim, quote unquote, figures abroad will take things out of context to justify Well, so you put Muslim figures, quote unquote, but there, there are Muslim leaders around the world who will claim those lines as instruction as inspiration for people well they will misclaim the lines i mean yeah. there's a deep islamic history about the the laws of conflict uh the laws surrounding warfare and peacemaking and historically those lines are actually you know the the the, the it's like a just war theory in catholicism mm-hmm. there are there are things that you cannot do and justify them in, even in times of conflict. For example, you cannot kill a non-combatant. You cannot kill a woman or a, children, a child or an elderly person. You cannot even harm the environment in, during times of war. You cannot poison water. You cannot chop down trees. You can't do things that are destructive, right? And uh, you know, so modern warf- warfare by its nature is un-Islamic, right? So there are a lot of Muslim scholars today saying, oh, I, I disagree with engaging in modern warfare because by its very nature, you're, you know, you have collateral damage uh, and you're killing civilians. And that's, yeah. not, that's not acceptable in Islam. So all of these, based on the Quran and teachings of Muhammad, these rules, these regulations regarding the limitations on warfare have been disregarded by these, and I say, quote unquote, religious figures that are claiming to be doing things in the name of Islam, they're doing things that's an offense, that's an affront to Islam, and is complete, you know, contradiction to the teachings of, of the Quran. The Quran says to save one life is if you save all of humanity, and to take one life is if you kill all of all of humanity, and that's considered a, a, a grievous sin. There are so there's sort of arguments to be made based on the text, right, and how it's interpreted, um, and then there's just the actual political, cultural manifestation of of um, different parts of Islam that exist differently in different cultures, right? In different parts of the world. And, and, and they're different from how they are here in America too. And I'm curious, because I'm sure you've gotten questions about this over the years, when people talk about things that are inherent in Islam, like is there something different about Islam, especially in relation to the other Abrahamic faiths? It's the youngest of them, right? It's, uh, it's still sort of evolving to a large degree, as I guess yeah. all faiths are. But when people talk about it, it is something different because in so many countries, there's such a close alignment between the political culture and the religious culture and the social culture. So what do you say I would say yes and no. Well, first of all, in regards to the theological, whatever, Islam is as close as Christianity and Judaism are, the Judeo-Christian. Islam is right in between the two. I mean, there's like Islam is closer to Christianity than Judaism theologically Mm -hmm. in that we believe in 
the Hebrew Bible, the God, the you know God the Creator, the God of Abraham, etc. Yeah, uh, and Adam and all of that. Uh, so we're like Judaism in that regard, and we have a law that's similar to Ju- you know the halacha or Jewish law. Uh, but we also believe in Jesus as Christ, born to the Virgin Mary, is the Messiah, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are Quranic expressions. Mm-hmm. The Messiah is in the Quran, Christ that God that God. Uh, um, you know, created Jesus in the womb of Mary without a man having touched her. So, you know, these are theological tenets of of traditional Islam and 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 based in Scripture, uh, not something that exists in Judaism. So we all we we have kind of, you know, we're closer to Christ, to Judaism than Christianity in that the, there's a strict focus on monotheism, the the dietary laws, and so many other practices, even the prayers, right. very similar to Judaism, but. You know, we're closer to closer to Christianity than Judaism in that we further acknowledge Jesus as a source. We're different than both in that we also acknowledge Muhammad as a source for doctrine and law. But Muhammad basically came and said, and I'm quoting, I'm not coming with anything new. I'm coming with the religion of Abraham who preceded Judaism and Christianity. So, you know, I'm just here to uphold the theology of Abraham, our, the forefather of us all. So theologically, no, not different. Even yeah. though I'd go into a Barnes and Noble, remember there used to exist these things called bookstores. I've heard of them. Yeah. So yes. they used to have Islam section in Eastern religion. Yeah. So I mean, it's no more Eastern than Judaism and Christianity. It's the same people, same personalities. You know, Abraham, the, the two the, descendants. The and, theological argument is is one sided. Yeah. So most second, most people yeah. who adhere to the faith aren't religious scholars like that's, you, right? They may not even have read the Quran. So that's the second point I was about yes. to make. So that so theologically, yeah. it's not different. Right. So what is different? Yeah. I would say that Islam started out as a tribal religion, right, to people who were chauvinistic and had their own idiosyncrasies. And Islam came, quite frankly, as a feminist movement, uh, empowering women in ways that was uncomfortable for the people of their uh, of their time, mm-hmm. giving women the right to divorce, the right to choose who they marry, to divorce, inherit property, things that were denied them before Islam. And he put a woman in charge of the marketplace, and, you know, women were empowered. He, you mean the Prophet Muhammad? The Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. So, so he changed the culture uh, during his time, and after he died, things were reverted back to the kind of pre-Islamic, chauvinistic uh, traditions that existed in Arabia before Islam. Yeah, Islam happened to sp- to have spread rapidly within a hundred years from China to Spain, North Africa to places that were primarily tribal and chauvinistic. So Islam got to let's say Afghanistan. Afghanistan, when Islam got there, was tribal and patriarchal, chauvinistic mm-hmm. in its culture. Uh, Islam did not rid Afghanistan of those cultures. Uh, and in fact, culture trumps religion. And even though they nominally adopted Islam as a culture, mm-hmm. they disregard Islam when it comes to important cultural practices. For example, honor killings. Honor killings yeah. are practiced in Arabia, they're in, in Iraq, for example, which is an Arab country. They're practiced in in Pakistan and in Afghanistan, in South Asia, yeah. Southeast Asia. They're practiced yeah. in South America, by the way, as well. So it's not just a Muslim phenomenon, but it's you know practiced in these uh, patriarchal chauvinistic cultures. Yeah. There was an interview in 2003 that I heard on NPR, you know, the other station, um, and they uh, they interviewed a, a, a guy whose niece was kidnapped by a gang of marauders who were kidnapping folks for ransom. And his tribe, they're from Baghdad, mm-hmm. his tribe raised the money and paid off the kidnapper, kidnappers and they got their niece back. Mm-hmm. And he was particularly close to her. So he went to her gun in hand and shot her in the temple point blank range and killing her in cold blood. So he's walking around as the hero of his tribe, uh, free as a free man. And he's being interviewed, being interviewed by the NPR reporter. Because she presumably been assaulted by the women Well, here's, here's, the, here's the logic. Okay. Here's the, follow me on this one. Yeah. The reporter is saying, what did you, why did you do that? He said, well, I love my niece dearly. She was, you know, we were very close. She was kidnapped. And, and so, you know, I see her, I see, I have nightmares where I'm waking up in a cold sweat after having done this. And I see her in my dreams and she's, you know, pleading it to me. And if I had to do it all over again, I would. And she's like, why? He goes, well, I'm an educated person. I'm a lawyer. Uh, nothing against lawyers, but he was a lawyer, and he said, "He said, you have to understand in my culture, um, the the status of our tribe rests on the 
on the reputation of the women in our tribe. So if we allow our women to be out and about where they can be morally loose, right, sexually loose, or be kidnapped, I mean, she was kidnapped, right? But they weren't protective of her. She was out by herself to be kidnapped. Hmm. So if we are a tribe of loose morals, we allow our women folk to just run, run around by themselves, hmm. then we, we, no one will do business with our tribe. People won't marry into our tribe. We can't walk in the streets with our head held high. Hmm. What I did was to punish her by death to show that what she did in going out and about by herself where she could get kidnapped or raped or molested or whatever, was she was rogue in doing that. And so we had to punish her. That's why it's called an honor killing. We have to regain the honor of our tribe to by, by punishing this. I mean, this, this is barbaric. This is barbaric. I just had uh, a, a dinner with uh, an Oscar-winning director from Pakistan who did... Uh, this was the last, uh, not this, this past Oscars, Oscars. Yes, yeah. from a year ago. She was, uh, it was her second Oscar, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the night before she won. But she was talking about her film, Girl in a River, mm-hmm. which is a powerful movie, and you might have seen it. But it's about a story of a girl in Pakistan who was engaged by her father to a neighboring, a guy from a neighboring village or a nearby, nearby suburb. And, you know, it was all done with the permission of her parents and all that. She was engaged, which is really legally married. She was legally married, yeah. Islamically married yeah. to this other gentleman. Um, the uncle comes along and says, you know what? I found someone who's better. Yeah. So, you know, he wanted the, the girl to break it off, to annul the marriage mm-hmm. and to marry this other guy. So she had already developed. I mean, she's a young lady. She, they had been speaking. They're engaged. She developed already attachment. So she's... She, like, went away and moved in with her husband, mm-hmm. her husband. So this was considered shameful, so shameful and disrespectful and dishonorable that she would disobey her the will, will of her parents and mm-hmm. her father in particular. So she was fearful of what they might do. But her father and her uncle reassured her, we just want to talk, come visit us. So reluctantly, she finally came and visited them. They took her to a river. Mm-hmm. They shot her in the face in point-blank range. Mm-hmm. Um, they put her in a sack. They, they tied the sack. They threw her in a river for, to die. The bullet somehow did not go into her skull but came out. It, so she has a huge scar now. It came out here by her ear. Um, she somehow got out of the sack, made it, made it out, to the, swam to the shore, went to a police station. They arrested the father and the uncle. Here's the kicker. Even though they, what they did was against the law, they were behind bars. They were being interviewed by the filmmaker. They said, we, we, we are so happy we did this. We would do it again. Since we did this, we've gotten 50 marriage proposals to our younger, to our younger daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is considered honorable, and we are considered a, a good family now that we, to, we show that we do not allow our women to be loose or to be whatever, disobedient to their... And so they would have gone and been, been prosecuted. However, there was a loophole in the law that if the girl is pressured through social pressure to forgive her parent, her father and her uncle, yeah. then they would be released. And of course, under all of that tremendous social pressure, yeah. she had to forgive them and they were released from prison without any This brings me to the larger point here, which is that there are terrible things done, not just to women, but to a lot of people in the name of Islam, using yeah. the religion as justification. Yeah. This goes back to the, the but larger point. But in neither point, of these cases were they really justifying re- through, relig- through religion, other than to generally say but religion honor, says religion says obey your parents. Well, it doesn't really say that. It says be, sure, be honorable says, to your says parents. Says the theological scholar. But for most people, in the actual practice of the religion, it can be used to subjugate women. It can be yes, used to carry true. out not can be it is yes that's used true. to justify terrible terrible things being done. And I guess in this day and age, in particular. When there's so much attention paid to terror and acts of terror committed in the name of Islam, you must get this question all the time. How how can they do that? Well, I would say, in short, Islam doesn't mistreat women. Muslims mistreat women. And Islam uh, has a lot of work to do to try and and raise the level of, uh, of righteousness in the societies that claim to be Muslim. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, culture in all of those places, Trump religion, and just like we have fake news here when it comes to presidential elections and, and uh, you know, alternative facts, there are fake, there's fake news and alternative facts that permeate the Muslim world with regards to the, to the practice of their own faith. Mm-hmm. And so 
whatever is just is traditionally done or historically done, they just kind of lump it all under religion. But there has to be a concerted effort by people of, of conscience, yeah. people who, who, who know better to say, no, not in our name, not in the name of this faith and not in the name of morality and righteousness and human rights. We have to step up and give pushback to that. And that has to be done in, in an authentic way in order to be effective. It can't be perceived as, being, as coming from outside. And so that's really the challenge is like, how do you support momentum organically in a, in a, in a, within a culture mm-hmm. without being an imperialist in doing so, right? And yeah. so part of what we're trying to do at the Islamic Graduate School is uh, provide an authentic understanding of the faith but for modern times, and that's actually our vision statement. For modern times and also for American culture, well, right? For the American culture yeah. and for the world, because you know ultimately so, we're all human beings, and right. we all have the same aspirations, and even if you've traditionally marginalized women or whatever in your culture, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. For, you know, there can be progress and development and, and evolution. So this is an important point that I, I'm, I was surprised to learn from you and that I don't think most people know. When there isn't, as you'd mentioned before, that place of higher learning for Islamic study in a Western context, in especially in America, people have to go elsewhere yeah. to learn about it. Yeah. And they not only learn about that, but they, they, learn, that they culture, learn it in the context the regressive of that culture, culture. And they bring it back here to the States. So yeah. lay for me is kind of the, the, the foundation here. When you talk about Islamic scholars in America, where are they coming from if they're not learning so there was in a, an American context? There was a study done in 2011. Yeah of American Muslim mosques. That, at that time, there were about 2,200 mosques. And they, uh, they concluded in that survey that only 44% of the mosques had a full-time imam, religious leader. Mm-hmm. 93% of those imams were born, raised, and educated abroad. 93 93, born, raised, and educated abroad. 4% were born and raised here, but educated abroad. And only 3% were born, raised, and educated here. And they're pr- primarily in the African-American Muslim community. So... We have a lot of work to do. So when I was, so that ties into the, to my position now in the yeah. sense I was, you know, here I was teaching at UCLA as adjunct, pursuing my PhD and working as the imam, religious director at this, you know, very well-established mosque here in Los Angeles, a very large community. I was approached by the president of a Christian seminary, a liberal kind of main, mainline Protestant Methodist uh, Christian seminary mm-hmm. uh, back in 2009. And he said, you know, I've been following what you're doing, and, um, you know, I need your help. I said, well, how can I help you? He said, well, we, you know, I'm brought on to this as the new president to this 130-year-old Christian seminary that is, um, you know, the, the student numbers are declining in seminaries, Christian seminaries across the United States, and they brought me on to revitalize the institution and to bring up the student numbers, and uh, I need your help in doing so. I said, well, how can I help a Christian seminary <laughs> increase the student numbers? He said, well... I have a vision, I think, that will achieve that goal. And the vision is to desegregate theological education. I said, what do you mean? He said, I want to make Christianity relevant by partnering with a Jewish seminary, a Muslim seminary, a Buddhist university, so that our students not only know and understand the other world, major world religions, but have the skill set in how to cooperate and collaborate across the religious divide uh, for the common good, mm-hmm. how to identify the common ground and build on that a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I said, great. And he said, and I'd love to start by partnering with the Muslim seminary, uh, graduate seminary that's accredited. I said, wow, that's a fantastic goal, but there's one problem. There's no accredited Islamic graduate, graduate seminary yeah, in all of the United exist. States, let alone here in Southern California. Right. But we need one. Yeah. You know, the study that had come out, actually came out two years later, but intuitively I knew that that was the, the context, yeah. having traveled and lived in the United States. For so long. And so I said, we need one. Um, and I think I can help you create one. I'm an academic and I'm a religious leader. This is kind of combining my two worlds. So mm-hmm. I can, as a project of the Islamic Center, create an Islamic seminary for you to partner with. And, and he said, and this is collapsing about a two-year conversation into two minutes, but he said, we can help you if you, do, if you decide to do that. Yeah. And I said, how? He said, well, we'll share with you our 16.4-acre campus and our buildings, our library, our infrastructure, all of that. I said, fantastic. Uh, he said, also, we will uh, we'll, we'll provide the startup funding for the first couple of years because we had a donor that was excited by the idea. I mm-hmm. said, wow, that's fantastic. And uh, he said, there's more. I said, what more could there be? <laughs> he said, we'll give you accreditation. 
And I said, wait, 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 I'm an academic. I know a little bit about accreditation. You can't give us accreditation. The accrediting body does. He said, yeah, I'm a commissioner there. I know how it works. We can incubate you as a division of our school. And once you're ready, you can split off and take your accreditation with you. So why is this important? for the way that Islam is practiced in America. Well, it's to, ha huge. to have an American accredited body that offers a higher level of Islamic well, study. It's huge what does for, that mean? It's huge for two reasons. Yeah. For the first reason, it's huge because you know, he, we don't know how to do religion in the Muslim world that's free from government interference and manipulation. So everyone in the media it's separate from like political ambition. Political ambition. Everyone yeah. in the everyone in the media thinks that the Shias and Sunnis are at war. It's really Saudi Arabia versus Iran, and it has to do with oil. And they manipulate Shiism and Sunniism as like a way to— ancient sectarian divide. As an ancient sectarian— Yeah. I mean, I know so many people that are Sunni and Shi'i. They're Sushi, right? I mean, they're half of this, and they're intermarried, and, you know, they right. all get along. It's not a, it's not a theological divide. The but divide can... between Shi'is and Sunnis is less than the divide between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. Right? It's not—although they used to not get along, too, but— you know, between, I would say, Episcopalians and Lutherans. Like, people couldn't even tell you the difference between the two of them. 99% of the theology is the same between Sunnis and Shias. I lived in Iran. I lived in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Both places that are, you know, struggling in this conflict and, and promoting the sectarianism. It's more about economics. Um, it has to do with culture. It yeah. has to do with political power and forms of government. Right, Saudi Arabia has a minority population of fifteen percent right. that live in the area where their oil comes from. They don't want their minority Shiite population to be inspired by the Iranian Revolution of seventy nine right. to take over their bread and butter, right, where their oil comes from. But so here they in the are States. persecuting those minorities, and they are promoting this anti Shiite rhetoric, and then it results in arming the, the different factions and bombing Yemen and Syria and Iraq and everywhere else. Yeah, in a lot of places where the, the the religion and the political hierarchy are basically the same thing, right? Or like one and is they used to justify the other. And they control their state-run so institutions. Here, Islamic University of Medina yeah. is owned by the Saudi government. Al-Azhar Egypt is a is a division of the of the, of the ministry here, of, of, here of, in of religion. America, yeah. You think that there's a possibility for Islam to sort of come into its own in an American context with imams that are actually trained here. Yes, and that's why it's so vital. Like we can ha we have the complete freedom here. We have the first amendment and we also have the establishment clause in the constitution yeah. that the US government cannot uh, favor one religion or another and and promote the establishment of one religion over another. Yeah. So we have complete freedom to allow Islam to manifest itself in a way that's true and authentic and can, can speak truth to power and can whatever and not be embarrassed or shy or yeah. or timid about um, confronting U.S. domestic or foreign policy or foreign governments. But here's the thing about Islam in America, too, is that I think it's basically half of Muslim Americans like regularly attend some kind of prayer service, right? I would so, say it's less so than the, that. I think it's more like 20%. It's a little, okay, I think the latest actual study I saw was less than half, but so they yeah. were generously, let's say half, a little less than half of yeah. people. But so fully half, more than half, aren't actually influenced by religious leaders or scholars of, of any kind. And there are, let's be honest, there are undeniably things done, like crimes committed in America in the name of Islam. Things like honor killings and forced marriages and female genital mutilation. Things that are, people use the religion to justify, either because they've imported the cultural context from somewhere else or whatever their belief system is. Is like, Does the Muslim community here need to do more to recognize that, to, to speak up against that? Those are things that are in absolute contrast to core American values, right? Yes. So how do we address that in well, our own community? Well, well, I, I would say that um, you're right. Two-thirds of our community are immigrants or the children of, our, of immigrants. The other one-third or one-fourth, I would say, is, according to Pew, uh, African-American, coming through the nation of Islam mostly, but you know, from the African-American uh, uh, demographic here mm -hmm. in the United States. People like you know Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. You know they they they're part of that demographic. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dave Chappelle. Although you know he does he's not uh, wearing his religion on a sleeve. I don't know if you've seen his uh, his recent uh, comedy show. Um, so, but the point that I'm making is that those that came as immigrants came from. I mean, we have over 80 different nationalities at the Islamic Center of Southern California alone. Right. They come 
oftentimes from those cultures, they bring their culture with them, and they practice, you know, to them, to re- be religious is they're thinking back home in the village what the local imam would do, right? right. That's what true authentic religion is. Uh, not everyone's religious, uh, and so hence less than half come to a mosque. Uh, and those that go to a mosque, I would say, have two, have two distinct attitudes and postures. Most that go to a mosque go to a mosque because it's a cultural comfort zone. Right. It's a cultural oasis. It's what they know. It's, it's what they know. It's right. like the, the da- vast desert of America. They find this, you know, watering hole um, where they come and they, you know, can drink the same kind of tea that they do back home, either with milk or with mint. Right. Um, and they, uh, you know, can speak the language and dress and be be in a comfortable zone. And so the mosque is really like a cultural club yeah. for the most part that has religion as part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um I would say overwhelming majority of mosques are ethnocentric, divided by that ethnic group. So we have in L.A., we have a Bangladeshi mosque. Yeah. We have a Thai mosque. Mm-hmm. We have a Fijian mosque up in the Bay Area. We have Iranian mosques and Afghan mosques and, you know, Pakistani mosques and Arab mosques, et cetera, et cetera. So you could break it down. If the religion is about the religion, why are they breaking it down by ethnicity and culture and language? But Because they're not really thinking about you know, manifesting the values of Islam in this this country. They're thinking more about, yeah, this is a place where I can come and be comfortably Muslim. That's overwhelming majority of mosques. And there are, you know, like, you know, probably a million people go to mosques and and have that attitude. Mm -hmm. In order for Islam to be sustained in the United States and be meaningful and have a positive impact and be meaningful to young people, be passed from generation to generation, it has to be relevant has to be relevant to them in terms of, you know, like I was on my spiritual journey when I was a young person. What's the purpose of life, right? It has to answer those questions. Yeah. And it has to it has to contribute something to society. You can't just be in a bubble, right? You have to want to, you know, to, 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 to be part of the, of, the, of the fabric of the community in which you live. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think that there are, there's a growing realization for mosques that have been around a lo- long enough where they have a generation of young people where they f- see the first you know, sort of crop of that generation fading off into the woodworks, you know, marrying outside the community and, you know, kind of losing their connection to the faith, mm-hmm. kind of sobering up and say, whoa, 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 what are we, like, how can we, like, reorient what we're doing here and make it less about the culture back home and more about the values of Islam in a way that's relevant for the U.S. context? Yeah. And then they start looking for an imam who, who gets it and mm-hmm. who can relate to their young people. Mm-hmm. And that's where the problem is, because there's a, there's, there's a shortage of imams. But those imams don't exist. So we said, let's be a pipeline so we can create imams who are well-adjusted, culturally yeah. speaking, who understand American Muslim mentality, and who can be relevant for the youth, be inclusive of women, be civically engaged, and give the, the community a sense of purpose, mm-hmm. and also empower the community to tell our story in our own words. Mm-hmm. So part of it is about representing ourselves in media, but... But a lot, but most of it's representing ourselves to our young children, to mm-hmm. our ne- next generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have four kids. My oldest is sixteen. You know, it's it's an important part of what I'm doing as a Muslim parent. My wife and I is, you know, how to have a well-adjusted American Muslim identity and what role the community plays and the imam plays. It, you know, we're fortunate to have a more sort of inclusive, progressive, forward-looking kind of a community. But so many mosques, they don't have that as an option. The women aren't included. There's you know, it's all about back home or about this kind of antithetical politics. And there's no sense of being empowered. There's no sense of giving back to society or contributing to the betterment. It's all about sort of defensiveness. Do you think that men and women should pray together? Well, men and women always have prayed together. You mean next to each other? I mean, in a mosque, yeah. So if you go to the Kaaba, men and women pray together already. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I've made the Hajj twice. I've been Umrah a bunch of times. Uh, women and men are mixed together, and by the way, going around the Kaaba but is without, a form of prayer. Without and when going it comes to Saudi time, Arabia, which I'm not going to do on a regular basis. Yes, yeah, so you don't go. You don't make your five <laughs> daily prayers at the Kaaba. I don't. Shame I on don't. you. No. All right, so, but look, the, the fact is that in most American mosques, whether it's because of the cultural tradition or not, men and women pray, pray separately. Yeah. So I would say this. I would say this that um, you know there's a I would say a growing trend to uh, arrange the mosques differently so that women aren't in the back. It's kind of like the back of the bus, right? So culturally speaking in America, that kind of rubs people the wrong way. On the other hand, you know, there's the sense of like modesty. It sends a very clear message about the subjugation of women. It sends a very negative message. It sends a very negative message. But at the same time, uh, some women don't feel comfortable. Some women, and I'll tell you a story. When I was was the imam at the mosque, Mm -hmm. I spent two years trying to rearrange the prayer space in the daily, you know, the, in the mosque itself, so that the women would pray next to the men. Mm-hmm. 
and I got the religious committee on board. I got all the men on board and it came to the, to the board and we had a couple of women on the board and I just assumed that they would be with us. The women on the board torpedoed the move. And so the women and the men don't pray next to each other at the mosque. That is one example. Yes. And I, I'm willing to bet that you're going to be able to find, especially someone who's grown up in the tradition where they've always prayed separately, who would be more comfortable with that. But for people who look at the religion now and say that, you know what, I was raised in America. I was told that I was equal to my Muslim brothers or to anyone else out there. Why should I pray separately? Why do I have to stand behind them? Those mosques don't exist either. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, but there are a few mosques that are coming up that yes. the women pray next to the men yeah. uh, and still allow women to have a sense of modesty and privacy when they're you know when when they're bowing and the men too yeah. but uh but the, the but the but the, but the but i agree that there it, there is a symbolism there and it doesn't need to they shouldn't be behind a barrier there should be a sense a greater sense of inclusivity yeah. of women in leadership roles my mentor the late dr hassan hatout just before he passed away he invited me to visit with him at his home and and uh, just a few days before he passed and and i was the the leader at the islamic center and i said what advice do you give me in my leadership role? He was a very deeply spiritual person and learned person. And he said, he said two things, two pieces of advice. The first one was he said, be in service of humanity um, and eventually you'll be known for, for what it is that you do by your deeds. Uh, so lead the community in being in service of humanity. Uh, he said the second thing is have women be at the heart of the community because it's important that, uh, you know, women uh, have that leadership position. They're the ones who are going to be the glue that really holds the community together and, 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 and propels it forward. So, so you know, I've always taken that advice to heart very seriously. Uh, the Bayan Claremont has a chairwoman of the board. The chair uh, of our academic committee is a woman. We have uh, about equal numbers of male and female students. Um, Do you really? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. I think we might actually have a few more female students than male students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're also very ethnically diverse as These well. These are women who can then go on to be imams? So there is work? a women's mosque here in L.A. Yeah. And so women do lead the prayer. Yeah. And that's generally acceptable and even mainstream Sunni Islam. Mm-hmm. There has been a debate in recent years reviving uh, the the idea or the notion or the discussion about whether women could lead mixed gender prayers. Mm-hmm. And this is based on actually a prophetic uh, tradition at the time of Muhammad. There's precedent in which he assigned a woman, a muraqa, uh, a mu'adhan, someone to call the prayer, uh, who is a male, and told her to go lead her dar, which is like a, her household, her neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It could be something really small or really big. So even the traditional scholars who would be opposed to this, they acknowledge the authenticity of this report. Mm-hmm. So there's precedent of a woman leading a mixed prayer. Uh, but they debate as to whether Dar just meant her family and the, the, the age of the Mu'adhan, either he was a little boy or an old blind man or something. Yeah. Right? They try and somehow dismiss this as not really being a precedent uh, for women leading uh, mixed gender prayer. Mm-hmm. So nonetheless, that report exists. And if you want to take your religion seriously and not be too committed to just whatever you're familiar with culturally and how long it's gone back and in terms of the historic pre- precedent and practice, mm. uh, but you want to take the religion seriously and the sources of religion seriously, there is some serious precedent there. And uh, Amina Wadud has kind of led an effort and she received a lot of pushback as a result of that, even yeah. some death threats. But... You know, I think we have to take religion seriously and we have to examine the sources. And even if it leads you to an uncomfortable conclusion, you know, there's some legitimacy in, uh, in those who, who hold that position. So it's something to be discussed because it's, it's there in the, in the, in the books. Um, you worked the podcast title into your sentence there. I feel like that is, that's <laughs> I'm a full pro. circle. I teach a course on public speaking For and interviewing <laughs> media. So this is like, I'm trying to hit all of the, 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 the markers that I tell my students to hit. So I appreciate that. I appreciate your dedication to it. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for participating in it. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I, one last thing, if I could add, Please. if I could add, we, um, we recently worked with the family of the late boxer, Muhammad Ali and have announced that we are launching the Muhammad Ali Scholarship Fund to support imams and female leaders mm-hmm. within underserved communities who are working in underserved communities to get a full-ride scholarship to get a degree in uh, Islamic studies and leadership at Bayan, education, or even chaplaincy. 
So we just launched that a few weeks ago, and uh, we're raising money on the one hand, but we're committed to supporting 20 full-ride scholarships, which is $800,000 worth of scholarships. Wow. Yeah. So we're very excited. That's that. an incredible legacy. Yeah. For the family to leave behind. Yeah. Um, Jihad Turk, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on that. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.